Father, we thank you for the ransom price that Jesus has paid. We thank you that we are rescued. We thank you that you are so gracious and giving and good to us. Father, I pray now that you would speak through your imperfect servant because you know his sins are many. And edify your people. Glorify your name. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to uh, well, welcome to Epiphany and a little bit more intimate environment tonight. Uh, we are in our third Sunday in Lent, so Lent is upon us, and uh, we are looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. You can follow along with the words on your screen. It reads like this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual fruit, food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is God's word. Well, uh, if you have ever heard me preach before, you've sat under my preaching at all, and even if you haven't before, um, you should know that pretty much all the time I'm all about preaching the grace of God. I love talking about the grace of God. I love talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ that proclaims that he's literally done everything for our salvation, that he's, that he's truly saved us, and that's still true today, that's true tonight. But that said, what's most important to me is making sure that we define grace properly. Uh, and what I want to do today is I want to, I mean, really lay out for you what the Bible says, not just grace is, but what God does in our lives by his grace as believers. And one thing that scripture tells us will not be true of the recipients of God's grace is that we will live our lives with a flippant attitude to sin. Will not be true. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say if we are recipients of grace, that our lives uh, will reflect a, basically a battle 
A civil war, an internal civil war. Romans 7 describes this internal battle. Uh, Romans 6, before Romans 7, says, since you have died to sin, don't live in it any longer. We, you, don't, you don't have to live in it any longer. Galatians 5 says, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's this acknowledgement in Scripture in the New Testament that if God has graciously bestowed us with his rescue and his salvation through Jesus, that he's going to produce fruit in us, that he's going to produce a desire to walk by his ways. That said, we know we're not perfect, nowhere near it, that though we ought not desire sin anymore, we still do, and we're still tempted by it. And in each of the passages I just referenced, I mean, Paul acknowledges, you know, that we struggle and we fail. So, the spirit desires the things of God, but the flesh that remains wants to walk in the ways that are contrary to God. And that's, that's what's going on. So, so, what does Paul say to this church on this third week of Lent uh, about their battle with sin? That's what we're looking at, and that's what we're going to apply tonight to us. Well, first off, he tells them to learn from the past. Learn from the past. At the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 through basically 5, Paul lists a number of past events in the, uh, in the history of the people of God, urging, them, uh, urging that we look to them as examples. That's the word he uses there. First he says, quote, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And what is he talking about there? What is the cloud? It's not the cloud like we're used to thinking of the cloud. It's not some technological advancement. It's God's provision for his people when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. At that time, we're told in Exodus 13, 21, that in order to guide the people on their way to the promised land, the Lord, quote, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them uh, along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. That's what it says. Also, our fathers from Israel, quote, all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, of course, we can probably figure out that Paul is here referring to the people of Israel crossing through the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt. This deliverance, Paul says, he literally calls it a baptism that they received, that it was like it was a baptism. Now, you know that I could riff on baptism for a long, long time. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that just for the sake of time. He goes on. Uh, describing what the forefathers of Israel had received. He says, and all ate the same spiritual food. Now this, of course, refers to the, the manna that was sent from heaven, the bread that was sent from heaven. And for that matter, it might refer, even might reference the quail that they ate so much of that it was coming out of their nostrils, the Old Testament tells us. And then, of course, he says, they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So here what Paul is referring to is God providing drink for the people of Israel through a rock, through something that seemed impossible. He's told one time to strike the rock and water miraculously came gushing forth. So let's put all this together now. All the people that Paul describes here received abundant grace through God's leading in the cloud, through their baptism in the Red Sea, through a supper of the Lord's in the manna and the water from the rock which is Christ. These are all clearly pictures. 
clearly pictures of the same sorts of means of grace God has given us today in the church. We too, if you're Christians, have received God's leading in the cloud of his spirit. The cloud is often uh, synonymous with the spirit throughout the Old and New Testament. It's a symbolic word for the spirit. Christians are delivered through baptism. We too have been sustained in this wilderness of the world through his body and blood and bread and wine and communion. Yet some said in effect in this church, well, since God has been so gracious to me, giving to me so much, why don't I just enjoy the freedom by rebelling against him? So in spite of God's wonderful provision, we know that uh, some worship the golden calf. Many, actually. Connected with this, Paul references it later. Some were having uh, sexually immoral relationships. Some out and out challenged God's authority. And of course, many constantly complained and murmured against God. And what does Paul say happened in each instance? Though all were recipients of the grace of God, verse 5, quote, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So in response, Paul essentially says, Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Twice in this passage, in verse 6 and 11, we as church are told to, quote, Learn from them. Learn from their example. Don't think God will be mocked. That's the idea. His grace is there when you failed by indulging the flesh, yes, but it's not there for you to follow and indulge the flesh. It's not a justification for you to indulge the flesh. There's a big difference. His grace is never ending if you've fallen to the flesh, but it's not given so that you can indulge the flesh. Indulge your sinful appetites, your lower appetites, as some throughout history have called it. So, that's the first part. Paul says, don't see God's grace as a means by which you can flaunt your sin in his face. It's not for that. That's not what the grace of God is for. Secondly, that we might avoid falling into their trap, Paul says, well, instead, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. An arrogance and a spiritual pride had crept into the church of Corinth. If you remember back in chapters 1 and 2, uh, Paul has to correct the Corinthians' reliance on supposed, quote, special knowledge to justify their sinful behavior. What they thought, basically, is that they had special spiritual insight that gave them the right to, you know, have orgies after church and do all sorts of scandalous things because they were spiritual after all and it didn't matter what they did with their body. That was real. That was happening. And what Paul has to say is no. No, just because you think you have right thinking about God does not justify you to do whatever you want. So Paul says in response in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, this isn't Paul saying that we have to constantly worry about whether we can have assurance of our salvation in Christ. It's not what this is about. We can bank on those promises of God completely. Rather, what this is, is a rebuke, a warning to those who think they stand on their own, in their own strength. 
church had gotten cocky and they'd gotten self-assured. And there is nothing worse than a cocky and self-assured Christian. Someone who speaks as if they don't struggle anymore or acts as if they don't need to repent anymore. I've seen it. I mean, as a pastor for close to 12 years now, man, I've seen it. And it, it can ruin lives, spiritual pride. And when it does, I mean, it's only a matter of time before you fall. It's only a matter of time. I mean, what's the old statement about pride coming, you know, before, you know, before the fall? Let me share an embarrassing story with you of, um, well, pride coming before the fall for me. It's actually my most embarrassing moment in my life. Some of you I may have shared this with before, but, you know, I'm an open book. I'll share it again. When I was, I, I was, a, I was a teenager, my youth group went to this uh, regional youth convention. There were about, you know, 100, 150 kids there. And back then, maybe not hard to believe, um, you know, I was a bit of a clown. Uh, I was, you know, doing anything I could do to get a laugh. I was outgoing and was constantly joking around. And, and well, by the final night of the weekend, it had become uh, quite clear, at least to me, that I was, uh, I was you know, kind of special. And I even had proof of this. The final night of the convention, a special singer came in and during his set decided to give people from the uh, audience a chance to improvise their own lyrics while he played sort of a blues riff behind them. So he stood up there and he's like, dun, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he said, do I have any takers? Do I have anybody that would like to come up and share just something right off the top of their head? And no one, no one was going up. But then, this is really true. People started chanting my name. <laughs> And I, I'm telling you, my head had just swollen. I was swollen with pride, and I was so convinced. I mean, they couldn't be wrong. I must be able to go up and crush it. And so I ran up to the stage in my exuberance to make them laugh and be amazed at me. And the guitarist is singing, and he says, All right, Eric, go ahead and sing us a line. Dun, dun, dun. And I stepped up to the microphone. The first time I have ever stepped up to a microphone in my life, and I saw the crowd, and they're all waiting, just waiting. And I went, and I heard just one little breath from me on the microphone and the speakers, and I froze. I mean, I froze. I was paralyzed. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I was like a deer in the headlights, except it was a spotlight looking at me, and all I could say was... In front of the girl I had a crush on at the time, too. <laughs> I wish my mom and dad were here right now. Ah! Ah! That's the worst thing ever that's ever happened. Ever. 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 Like, if there's one thing you want to say, it's, 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 it's the worst thing you could say. I wish my mom and dad were here right now. And literally, I remember the, poor, the guy who was doing the guitar looked at me like, ooh. Poor boy, just, oh man, my face was beet red, I had nothing left, I wanted to hide, I couldn't, I just kind of shrunk back in the darkness of the stage to make matters worse. Right after me, my best friend got up stage and made the perfect improvisation of rhymed verses I had ever heard, and the crowd was in hysterics, and I sat there with my sad clown pride broken face. 
Now, before that moment, I was so self-assured that I was the man. I thought I could stand on my own, and I fell hard. And the problem for us spiritually is that we get to the place sometimes where we think we can, we can stand on our own, we can do it in our own strength, and it always leads to a failure. The more self-assured you are, ironically, is directly correlated to how fallen you are. See, growth in the spiritual life is the exact opposite of growth in our physical life, in this sense, that in our physical life, we grow, and that means we are able to take care of ourselves more without being dependent on others. We can grow more independent, at least from our parents and from those that we've always been dependent on. But spiritually, to grow is to become more dependent and less self-assured. As, the, as John the Baptist says, about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And that should be our heart's cry all the time. Therefore, Paul says, instead of doing that, lean on God's power. He writes in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. So that you will never have to deal with the temptation to sin ever again? No. That you may be able to endure it. And there is so much in this verse. I could spend a whole sermon just on this verse. But keeping this, keep in mind here the context. Paul tells us here three quick facts that we can draw on for strength in our fight against sin. Uh, number one. Remember. You're not alone. That's the first one. No matter what you may be tempted to do, remember that though you may oftentimes feel like you're the only one struggling with whatever you're struggling with, you are not. I promise you. I promise you, you are not alone. Now, I know you know this intellectually, but folks, so often, church folk fool themselves into thinking that our sins are worse than others. Or that if anybody else knew what we had done, what we struggled with, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't want to know us anymore. But the truth is, every church I've served has been filled with people that struggle with addictions and with legalism and with depression and with immorality and with gluttony and with complaining and lack of faith and you name it. You're not alone. Whatever it is, you're not alone. Your temptation, Paul says it this way, it's common to man. It's common to man. Second, remember God is faithful to you. God is on your side. He's actively working for you by his spirit to not be ensnared by that which hurts you. His son Jesus Christ came and proved that to you through his life, death, and resurrection. He credited to you all his righteousness because God is committed to you and your salvation. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. Now this does not mean that you have the ability within yourself to fight off temptation. But this means that he has given you the strength through his spirit to fight with it. This also does not mean, for some reason, I do not know why... People have read this verse and said that it means God will never give you more than you can handle. Nonsense. There's not a single verse in Scripture that ever proclaims such a thing. God will not give you more than He can handle. Yes. 
But you will have plenty of things in your life that you can't handle. That's why you need other people. That's why you pray. That's why you have the Spirit of God within you. Because you can't handle it. So, you don't have to ever say that anymore to anybody. Just forget it. Just forget it. Just let it go. That cliche is bye-bye. Thirdly, remember, God will give you a way out. But it is not a way out with ease. Rather, it is an escape to be able to endure it when you're tempted. Before Jesus left to go back home, he did not promise lives free from trial. Matter of fact, he promised all over the place that in this world we would have trial and tribulations and challenges we must endure. But he would say at the same time, take heart, I have overcome the world. So Hebrews 4 urges us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's how it looks. In your battle with sin, when tempted, you come to Jesus telling him exactly what you're struggling with. Your prayer might sound something like this. Father, what I, write, what I want to do right now is this sin. I want to do this. I want to. I know you want me to avoid it. I know you don't want me to. Part of me, he doesn't even want to pray right now because I'd rather do that sin. But Father, I know you've overcome that through your son Jesus. Father, help me. Help me. Help me. Overcoming temptation doesn't come by asserting spiritual piety or strength. It comes through acknowledging inability and need for help from your Father. It comes by letting go, folks. When I first arrived on the East Coast uh, in Staten Island initially, part of the requirement for finishing up my seminary classes is I was, um, I served at a uh, home called Egger Home as an assistant to the chaplain there. Now, I had, I had been around a hospital before uh, plenty of times, but I really wanted to learn. I mean, this is an opportunity for me. So I asked the head chaplain there if there was, uh, if I could just work with hospice patients in particular. That is, those, those who have stopped taking medicine and surgeries and doing things to try and fight their illness. These people, rather than fighting, just said, okay, I, I accept I accept that this is what will happen, that I'm not going to heal from this. And I noticed something interesting about a lot of these hospice patients when I was there. Some of you in the medical profession may know what I'm going to say. That once they accepted their condition, sometimes they actually got healthier. It's true. I, I noticed this anecdotally, but it turns out there's actually research to back this up. In the New Yorker, quote, in one study, researchers followed 4,493 Medicare patients with either terminal cancer or congestive heart failure. They found no difference in survival time between hospice and non-hospice patients with breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colon cancer. Curiously, hospice care seemed to extend survival for some patients. 
Those with pancreatic cancer gained an average of three weeks. Those with lung cancer gained six weeks. And those with congestive heart failure gained three months. And so the author concluded with this, parag this paragraph, the lesson seems you live longer only when you stop trying to live longer. Now, of course, don't hear this as some weird justification to not take medicine or to not take care of yourself. Do hear this as what it is. That there, when we accept and stop trying to fight psychologically, something happens. Spiritually, something happens. When we accept that we're not able to beat this sin on our own, that we're not able to fight this temptation on our own, then we just might actually find strength to fight the temptation. To fight temptation doesn't begin with triumphant statements of your victory over sin. Your battle against temptation begins with an acceptance that yes, it's there, it's there. Temptation is in you and there's, there's nothing you can do to fix it. But then you remember that you have the great physician on your side and he has the power over it all. In him. You place your life's care. He'll give you the power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us what we need. Father, even though your word tells us clearly that you will give us the power to endure whatever we're tempted with. Oh, how often. Oh, how often, Lord. We still fall. I thank you that there's grace and mercy for that. I pray, Father, that you would continually give us strength to endure whatever temptation plagues us, so that you would be glorified through us and our neighbors would be served. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.